Amen. John chapter number 11 and verse number 19. John, oh, excuse me. John chapter 20, verse number 19. You can tell I'm getting old or I was distracted by Sister Pennington. So John chapter 20 and verse number 19. All right. John chapter 20, verse number 19. If you're there, say amen. All right. Verse number 19. Then the same day at evening, beginning the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As my Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now that you can tell they were born again right then. Because in Acts chapter 1, they spoke with tongues because the Spirit came. So that tells you there's two experiences. The first experience Jesus breathed on, Receive the Holy Spirit. And if that's all there was to God, then Acts chapter 2 would have never been placed in the Bible. But Acts chapter 2, with the same people, they received the Spirit again. Because you receive the Spirit at salvation, but also there is another experience called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which happened in Acts chapter 2. Did you all get that? Are you all picking up what I'm putting down? All right, so, so I'll just move on, all right? And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is where the Catholic Church gets the priest should forgive you of your sins. This is the scripture they use. And if you and if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. Let me just tell you, you can use the Bible for anything. So before you go knocking every denomination because they don't want to use scripture, you better make sure why it's in there. I'm preaching real good up in here. If you forgive the sins of any, they are what? And if you retain the sins of any, they're retained. Now, I'm not going to go and preach a sermon about that, but there's a correct interpretation of that. Verse number 24. Now, Thomas, called the twin of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So Thomas wasn't there. Verse number 25. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands... And the print of the nails in his, in his hands and put my finger uh, in his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, and the doors uh, being shut, stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen, and yet they still believe. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. 
that you've given me to deliver to these people. I pray that you would open our ears and our hearts, that we would hear your word clearly, and that everything that is said and that everything that is done may bring you the glory. We bind, rebuke, and bring to no effect every distraction. And we thank you that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is always liberty. Now, Father, I'm asking you that when the Word is preached, that it pierces our hearts, that we may understand it, and not only understand it, that we would bear fruit, and we will not fail to praise you for it. And everyone said, Amen. Today, I want to preach on the thought, Doubting Thomas or Shouting Thomas. All right, say that with me. Doubting Thomas or Shouting Thomas. Say it again. Doubting Thomas. Say it really loud like you're shouting. Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas or Shouting Thomas. The last few weeks, we've been on a journey. If you have been at church the last few weeks, we have been on a journey, a sermon series called The Road to Easter. How many has been here for all four series of the sermon series? Amen. The Road to Easter. We started it on Palm Sunday. Part two was on Good Friday. Part, um, oh no, part one was about the weaknesses of the disciples. Part two was Palm Sunday. Part three was Good Friday. And then we ended the sermon series last week on the resurrection story. So we've been on this road called the road to Easter. And uh, we have a tendency after Easter to quickly move on. We quickly forget about the story of Easter. We forget about the significance of the story. And we move on very quickly after Easter is over. But do you know that there, the Bible is a story? It's a narrative, and you can just follow the pages of the Bible and learn what happens next after the Easter story. There's another story that happens. And so this morning, I want to do that. I want us to slow down this morning, and I want us to look at what happens right after the Easter story. Now, I want you to really pay attention this morning. I want you to put your, on your spiritual seatbelts, and I want you to listen what I believe the Holy Spirit wants to say. I want to deal with the story that happens right after Easter. I want us to look at the story this morning. Now, the story is found in John chapter number 20. Is that right? The story deals with John chapter 20. I want you to look at John chapter 20, the same chapter. John chapter 20 and verse number 1. John 20 and verse number 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So the chapter starts with the resurrection. In the same chapter, don't lose me, in the same chapter, verse number 19 is the text, the story that I just read to you. Look at it, verse number 19. John chapter 20. Verse number 19, then the same day at evening, beginning at the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. So guess what? I am dealing with the story after the Easter story, but I'm dealing with the evening of Easter. At the evening, 
all of the disciples are in the room. They're shut up in a room, and they were very, very scared. And Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up. It appears that the disciples did not believe the word of Jesus. It appears that most of them didn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. And they were shut up behind closed doors, and they were very fearful because of the Jews. They thought to themselves, the, Jew, the Romans killed, the Jewish leaders had Jesus killed by the Romans. And so we're next. So they went to closed doors and they hid. Easter was supposed to be a day of celebration. But for the disciples, it was a day of fear. And that evening, Sunday evening, they closed themselves up in the room, fearful of the Jews fearful of the Jews spying on them to the Romans. And Jesus shows up to them in the middle of their fear. Now what I want you to see in this story, I want you to see the man called Thomas. I want you to see Thomas. The Bible says in verse number 24 of chapter 20, now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus come, came. So I want you to see this. When the disciples was locked up in the room on Easter Sunday evening, they were fearful. One of the disciples were not there, and it was Thomas. Thomas was not there in the room. And for a few moments this morning, I want to deal with the life of Thomas, and I want you to look at the life of Thomas and see what you and I can learn about Thomas. Verse number 24, Thomas was called the twin and he was not in the room with the disciples when Jesus showed up. You see, my friends, for 2,000 years, Thomas has gotten a bad rap. For 2,000 years, Thomas has had a lot of neg uh, negativity. Uh, he's had a lot of bad pre uh, press. Preachers and pastors and priests have all declared that Thomas is a doubting person. And he's a disciple that we look at in a negative publicity. But I want you just to stop a few moments and ask the question, is it wrong to doubt? What's wrong if you doubt? Why does Thomas have such a bad rap? Why does he have such a bad rap? It's kind of like Mary Magdalene. We don't know for sure whether she was a prostitute, but the Catholic Church in the 15th century, deemed her as a prostitute. So for the last 500 years, we have preached from our pulpits that she was a prostitute. But we don't know for sure because the Scripture doesn't specifically say she was a prostitute. And it's the same way with Thomas. We have labeled him as a doubter. But this morning, I want us to stop and think about this man. And I want us to ask a few questions about if it's really wrong to doubt. And is it profitable to doubt? And what does it play in the Christian life? Because if we're all honest this morning, we all have doubted one time in our life. You see, I think that Thomas has been misjudged and Thomas has been mislabeled as a doubter. Yes, he's doubted, but just because you doubted one time, that shouldn't be a label on your life for all of centuries. Just because you did something once shouldn't be a label that's labeled to you for all of centuries. And that's exactly what's happened to Thomas. I, I don't think Thomas is as bad as we have betrayed him to be. As a matter of fact, church, I like Thomas. Because you know what? Thomas just didn't believe everything. 
Thomas was the type of guy that he needed more information. Thomas just didn't fall for everything. Thomas was a logical person, an analytical person. He dealt with the facts. He deals with the facts. He gets emotional after he gets the facts compared to some people who get emotional and then learn the facts. But Thomas was the opposite. He wanted to know the facts first, and then he got emotional. He wasn't against emotion. He just wanted his reason and his logic to be based upon facts. And Jesus wasn't against that. And sometimes as Pentecostals, we're against that. But we shouldn't be against that. Because Jesus said that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. He's given you a mind to use. So Thomas just didn't fall for anything. He dealt with the facts. And listen, church, if you fall for everything and you believe everything you hear and you believe everything that somebody tells you, then it's quite possible that you could be somebody that falls for a cult leader. You remember in the 70s, 900 people followed a man by the name of Jim Jones and they all drank Kool-Aid. It's really amazing to me. How in the world did you get 900 people to go across the world and drink Kool-Aid and I can't get people to drive across town to come to church? But he got 900 people to go across the world and drink some Kool-Aid and it was a mass suicide because they believed exactly what he said. You can't believe everything somebody says to you. You can't fall for everything. And Thomas, uh, that's why I like Thomas. Thomas just didn't fall for everything. He wanted to examine his faith. You have to examine your faith. You can't have an unexamined faith. Because if your faith is just based upon emotions, or your faith is just, faith is just based upon hearsay, or what you have been taught growing up, then I promise you when adversity comes, you will fall apart because your faith has been unexamined. And you've got to have an examined faith. You've got to have a faith that's built up on more than what your mama said and what your daddy said. Your faith has to be built up on something that's been examined and proved. And so Thomas had a faith that's been examined and it was proved. And no wonder he said, Lord, my Lord and my God, one of the greatest confessions in Christianity ever recorded in Scripture. My Lord and my God. And isn't it amazing that there has been all kinds of books that's been written about all kinds of disciples. Peter has had all kinds of books. As a matter of fact, the largest church in the world deems him as the first pope. I mean, this man is popular. Judas has had all kinds of books written about how he betrayed the Lord. John, the beloved, Jesus' best friend, has all kinds of books that was written about him. Mary, all kinds of books written about him, but you barely hear about Thomas. Thomas is a lesser disciple that you don't hear about. As a matter of fact, the Scriptures don't give us much information about Thomas. Church history tells us very little about Thomas. We do know, according to Scripture, that his name was called Didymus, which is translated twin. In other words, Thomas was probably a twin. Now, we don't know who his who his twin was, whether it was a, a, a male or a female. But some scholars believe that maybe, possibly, Matthew was his twin. I'm not sure if that's true. That's been inferred upon the text. Because usually when Thomas is mentioned in Scripture, Matthew is mentioned beside of him. Now whether he, that's his twin or not, I don't know. But we do know that Thomas was a twin. 
The scripture refers to him as twin. It refers to him as Didymus. And it refers to him as an apostle. In other words, Thomas was one of the chosen 12 that Jesus chose to preach the gospel and establish his church. The church history also tells us that uh, Thomas became a missionary to India. He went to India and preached the gospel, and there he was martyred for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we know very little, and only very little scripture in the New Testament deals with Thomas. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to give you a holistic approach to the life of Thomas and what you can learn about Thomas this morning. I want to spin the text this morning, and I want us to look at this man, and I want us to evaluate, is this man a doubting man? Is this doubting Thomas, or is this shouting Thomas? But let's look at it this morning. Let's look at the Scriptures, and I want to form a holistic approach to the life of Thomas, and I want to bring out four things today that you can learn from the life of Thomas. Four things that you can learn from the life of Thomas. Everybody shout that with me. Four things I can learn from the life of Thomas. Now, I believe you all could say amen to the first one. Number one, this is what we can learn from Thomas. Sometimes we are emotionally complex. Thank God for the three amens and five grunts. I said we are emotionally complex. We are emotional creatures. Very emotional creatures. Our emotions are up and our emotions are down. That's just who we are. We're human and our emotions are complex. Now, I want you to stay with me because when I begin to search the scriptures and begin to see this principle, I was so amazed of the truth of God that's found in the pages of scripture concerning Thomas. So I want you to see this. Number one, we are emotionally complex. I want you to see in verse number 19, John chapter 20 and verse number 19. Now get this, don't lose me. See, see how emotionally complex this is. I've never seen this before, but I want you to see what I believe the Spirit wants to reveal to us. Verse number 19, the same day at evening, beginning the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Now remember, Thomas is not there. The other disciples are there, but Thomas is not there. Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said, Peace be unto you. Now look at verse 24. Verse 24, John 20, verse 24, the same chapter. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. Now, go back to verse 20, and let me ask you a question. What was the disciples doing in the room? They were hiding from the Jews. Am I right? Verse 19. They were hiding from the Jews. But Thomas is not there. I'm going to say that again. You have ten disciples who are hiding from the Jews. Jesus had been resurrected that morning, that evening. They're fearful. But Thomas is not there. So, could it be... I'm inferring on the text that could it be that maybe Thomas wasn't afraid? Could it be that Thomas decided, I'm not going to go with y'all because I have nothing to be afraid about? Thomas was not in the room with the other disciples. And could it be that Thomas is actually brave? Could it be that Thomas 
is actually courageous. Could it be that Thomas said to the other disciples, you can go hide behind closed doors, but I refuse to hide. I refuse to be shut up behind closed doors and hide. Maybe that could be an interpretation of this. Maybe. I'm inferring. But you see, you see, you see how maybe he was brave. Second thing I want you to see, look at John chapter 11. There's only very few scriptures that mention Thomas. John chapter 11 and verse number 8. I want you to see this. John chapter 11 and verse number 8. I want you to see what happens in this particular scripture. John chapter 11 and verse number 8. Amen. We'll wait on you. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. Are you, and are you going there again? So here the Jews wanted to stone Jesus, and here this is what the reply of Thomas was in the same chapter. Chapter 11, verse 16. Chapter 11, verse 16. Look at it. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to the fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now stop, church. The first scripture I indicated to you that maybe Thomas is brave. Maybe the reason he's not in the room with the other disciples is because he's not afraid. Maybe he's, maybe he's brave. Number two, in John chapter 11, here is Thomas's confession. He is saying to the other disciples, if the Jews are going to kill you, Jesus, we're going to go with you and we're going to die with you. So I would propose this. Not only could Thomas be brave, but I'm saying that Thomas was probably courageous. He was courageous. Let us go and die with the Lord. Let us go. If they're going to kill you, Jesus, I'm going to go too. Maybe Thomas was not only brave, but Thomas was also courageous. Now look at John chapter 20 and verse number 25. John chapter 20 and verse number 25. Then the disciples said to him, that all of the disciples said to Thomas, we've seen the Lord. And what did Thomas say? Unless I see it in his hands and the print of the nails and put my finger in the print of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. And now you find him doubting a little bit. He's doubting a little bit. So how can you be brave, courageous, and then doubt. How can you be courageous, brave, and then you doubt? Because sometimes we are emotionally complex. Have you ever been brave one day and next day you were afraid? Have you ever been courageous one day and the next day you had a little bit of doubt? Have you ever been on the mountaintop and the next day you were in the valley? Sometimes we are emotionally complex. Listen, the emotional impact of Jesus' suffering and death had a toll on Thomas's mind and heart. At one moment, Thomas is saying, I'll die for you. Let's go die for you. And the next moment he's saying, I'm not going to even believe unless I touch him. Because maybe Thomas's emotions was so distraught over Jesus' death that he doubted whether Jesus was the person whom he declared to be. 
And sometimes, church, we can get victory on Sunday, and on Wednesday you feel defeated. Because we are emotionally complex. There's a war between the spirit and the soul and the flesh. And if you feel that way, then welcome to the club. I want to let you know that God is not intimidated by our complexity and our emotions. Can somebody say amen? How many would wave your hand and say, Pastor, I've been that person before? Up and down. I want you to see this. No, I didn't even see this until I was studying. Sometimes we're emotionally complex. Mark chapter 9 and verse 24. You remember the man who prayed that his baby would be delivered from demon possession? The Bible says in Mark chapter 9 and verse 24, the Bible says this. I want you to see the story of this man who was pleading with the Lord to deliver his child from demon possession. Mark chapter 9 and verse number 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, but help my... Do you see that sometimes we're stuck in the world of believing and disbelieving? Really, the word for unbelief is doubt. It wasn't that he didn't believe the Lord, it's that he was doubting. He, he, he was struggling between believing and doubting. You see, because sometimes we are emotionally complex. Now, before I move on to point two, this is so encouraging. What about one of the greatest men who ever lived? Do you know who it was? Besides Jesus, it is John the Baptist. Even Jesus declared that that no other man has been born of woman that is as great as John the Baptist. John the Baptist was one of the greatest men ever born to woman besides Jesus. That came from Jesus' mouth. But I want you to look at this great man of God who doubted in the last years of his ministry. Mark chapter 16. No, let me... Let me see. I don't know if I want to... Can I back up and say something else? Because I want to get to that point. But I want to say this. Not only is John the Baptist dealt with unbelief and doubting, but I also want you to see that Peter dealt with the same thing. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, look at what Peter says. Peter dealt with the same thing. I'll get to John the Baptist in just a moment. Peter dealt with the same thing. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 16, I want you to see Peter's great confession of who he thinks Jesus is. Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 16. Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now this is a great confession. But six verses later, six verses later, In verse number 23, Matthew 16, verse 23, I want you to see what happens here. Six verses later, Jesus calls him a devil. Now, how can it be that the master praises you? Who do you think I am? Well, you're the Christ. Jesus said, flesh and blood hath not revealed this, but my Father in heaven. And six verses later, Jesus calls him a devil. Because we are emotionally complex. Sometimes we have the ups and the downs. 
Sometimes we make great confessions. And sometimes Jesus has to rebuke us. See what I'm saying? If you feel that way this morning, you're in great company because great men of the Bible dealt with it as well. They dealt with it as well. We're emotionally complex. Listen, Thomas's moment of bravery didn't entirely define him. Nor should his moment of doubt define him as well. We all have moments that we're not proud about. And we all have moments that we wish we could forget. But what we can learn from Thomas is this. That when Thomas was in Jesus' presence, it increased his faith to believe. But when, when Thomas was away from Jesus, he doubted. So when you are in the presence of Jesus, your faith will increase. Because when Thomas was in the presence of Jesus, his faith increased. But when he was away from Jesus, his faith decreased. Because we are emotionally complex. Number two, I want you to learn from Thomas today is that it is okay to ask questions. Number two, it is okay to ask questions. It is all right. The Bible says in John chapter 14, John chapter 14, and listen, sometimes when I grew up in the old church, we wasn't allowed to ask questions. I'm just being honest with you. We just didn't ask questions. You couldn't go to the movies, and I wanted to know why, but you wasn't allowed to ask. Can I hear an amen? As a child, I always asked questions because I wanted to be a pastor. I wanted to be a preacher. I remember asking a question, why do we go to church on Sunday? And I promise you, nobody had the answer. But well, okay. They just looked at me. It's okay to ask questions. We shouldn't make people feel bad for asking questions. It's all right to question our faith. It's all right to ask the question, how, why is it that somebody can die after we've prayed for him? Why is it that how can Jesus be God and the Father be God and the Holy Ghost is God? Who do you worship? Do you worship the Father? Do you worship the Son? Do you worship the Holy? It's okay to ask those questions. It's all right to ask the questions of, is hell really an eternal place of the damned? Do you mean to tell me I can sin for 70 years and go to hell for all eternity? Is that justice? It's all right to ask the hard questions. It's okay to ask questions. And in this story, you find him asking questions. You find Thomas asking questions. John chapter 14, listen to it. I only got two more points, just stay with me. John chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus said, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said to the Lord, what did Thomas say in verse number 5? Lord, we do not know where you're going. And how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. You see, Thomas really missed the point. Thomas missed it. Jesus, I go away to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come again. Thomas is like, well, what do you mean by that? Where are you going? 
How can I go with you? He missed the spiritual implication of it. But did you know that Jesus never rebuked him? As a matter of fact, Jesus never called him out and said, Thomas, straighten it up. You know you shouldn't ask that question. Why are you so dense, Thomas? Not one time did Jesus do that. You know what Jesus said? He just flipped it. Well, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus was sensitive to Thomas's questions. It's okay to ask for clarification. It's okay to ask for questions. Matthew chapter 11. I want you to see John the Baptist now. John chapter 11. John asked questions. John was one of the greatest men ever born to woman. Jesus made that statement. But even John the Baptist had questions concerning Jesus at the end of his ministry. The Bible says in Matthew chapter number 11, I want you to see this great man, and I want you to see the struggle that this man went through. Matthew chapter 11 and verse number 1, Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and preach into their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said to him, Go and tell John the things which you have heard, the things which you see, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. John the Baptist, a great man of God, even the Bible says, the Bible says that this man, this great man in John chapter 1, verse 29, look at it. John chapter 1, verse 29. I want you to see what John the Baptist said. John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. Now, church, let me ask you a question. What in the world happened to John the Baptist when he was in prison? He was in prison and sent two of his disciples and said to those disciples, will you go find out if Jesus is really who he said he is? How can you make a declaration that Jesus is the Son of God and then doubt it at the end of your ministry? Because we're emotionally complex, folks. It's all right to ask questions. Because if you were thrown into prison like John, he began to doubt whether Jesus was the one. No wonder the disciples doubted. Here is a man that we loved and cherished for three and a half years and the Romans killed him. They're going to be afraid. They were doubting. They were hiding behind closed doors. I don't blame him. Here is one of the greatest men who ever lived. And at the end of his ministry, he wanted confirmation. He wanted clarity. He had a question to ask. Jesus, are you the one? Or should we pray for another? Or is somebody else going to pray? I thought he, I thought he knew he was the one. Because sometimes we doubt. Sometimes we doubt. Number three, in closing, listen, you've got to understand that there is a difference between doubt and unbelief. 
There's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt deals with the intellect. It deals with the process. But unbelief deals with the heart. There's a difference between the doubter and the unbeliever. A doubter looks for a reason to believe. While an unbeliever looks for any reason not to believe. God accepts the doubter, but He rejects the unbeliever. There's a difference between somebody who doubts and somebody who is an unbeliever. Listen, let me just say this. Doubting is not the unforgivable sin. Doubting is not the unforgivable sin. Listen, I got good gospel news for all of you this morning that may be struggling in your doubt. The reason you're doubting is because you believe. You wouldn't be doubting if you didn't believe. So that tells me that doubt and belief goes hand in hand. Sometimes there's a struggle. There is a difference between somebody who doubts and somebody who is unbeliever. A doubter looks for a reason to believe. But an unbeliever looks for a reason not to believe. It's like the Pharisees. They had every reason to believe. They saw the miracles. They heard the teachings of Jesus. But they refused to believe. They were an unbeliever. But then you have people like Thomas, who was a believer, but just doubted. But the Pharisees refused to believe, so therefore they were the unbeliever. They refused to believe. Can I, can I just shout, I'm, I'm going to land the plane. Is this all right with somebody? Somebody just wave your hand and say, this is all right. I found something, Brother Ingle. Boy, I, I got really excited when I found this out because I almost started crying. And I don't want to cry this morning. But the Word of God is so good. And it just liberated me because there's times in my life I've never doubted Jesus or what He's done for me, but there are things I've, I've doubted whether I should have did this or did this or said. You know, you, we always deal with it. But in the spite of, the, you know, sometimes you condemn yourself because you doubt. But then when I was reading the Scriptures this week, can I hear an amen? And this is what I want you to see, that if you're struggling with doubt, I want you to know something this morning, that God works in you and through you in spite of your doubt. I'm going to shout up in here. I said, God works in you and through you in spite of your doubt. Where do you find that in Scripture? I'm glad you ask. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Are you all ready for it? Matthew 28, verse 16. What happens in Matthew 28? Jesus is resurrected from the dead on Easter. Then Jesus, in verse 16, he sends his disciples away in the Great Commission. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee, the mountain in which Jesus had appointed for them. Now look at this. This is right after Easter. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. What are you saying, preacher? I'm saying these 11 disciples on the Judean hillside, not all of them believed all at once. Some of them doubted. But guess what? They still preached the gospel. They still changed the world. And the church is the largest institution in the whole known world because the 11 disciples eventually believed in spite of their doubt. Woo. So God uses you even when you doubt. Even when you're struggling to believe, God uses you. They doubted. God used them. 
The key is not to stay in your doubt, but to move in faith towards Christ. They moved towards their faith in Christ. John chapter 20, verse 19. Look at it. Now, John 20, verse 19. God works in spite of our doubt. He works in spite of our emotionally complex nature. He works in us and through us. Here you find in John chapter number 20, verse 19. Now get this. Don't, don't lose it. Because I want to land the plane with this. John chapter 20, verse 19. Then the same evening, being the first day of the week, when the disciples were shut in, in assembled for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came, stood in front of them, said, Peace be unto you. Hold on. Look at verse 19. Now, you know Thomas is not there. Okay? There's Judas has hung himself. There's ten disciples. They were in the closed doors, all right, being fearful. In the midst of them being fearful, guess what happens? Verse 20, the Lord appears to them. And then the Lord, verse 21, he sends them as apostles. If you look at the heading of your Bible, my Bible says the apostles are commissioned. Now, that's interesting. You mean to tell me the apostles were commissioned even when they were hiding behind closed doors and they were fearful? Yes. God commissioned a bunch of disciples. He commissioned a bunch of disciples who were shut up behind closed doors. They were fearful. And Jesus shows up and guess what he does? He says, peace be to you. And he blows on them to receive the Holy Ghost because God wants you to know it doesn't matter how much doubting you may be, how messed up you are emotionally, I could still use you for my kingdom. Yes, 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 yes. And my friends, that's what you call grace. In the middle of them being fearful, in the middle of them shutting themselves behind closed doors, he comes to them and he commissions them and breathes upon them to be his apostles. And I would say this, the reason that Thomas wanted to see Jesus' hands and feet if you do a little research, if you were going to be an apostle, you had to be an eyewitness. So Thomas missed an opportunity in verse number 19 to see Jesus. But Jesus said, although you missed an opportunity, I'm going to show up in the room again, and I'm going to let you see me. Because if you're going to be an apostle, you've got to be an eyewitness of what I've done. He had to see Jesus. He missed an opportunity in verse number 19. He wasn't there. But the Bible says, look at it, verse 24. He missed it that one day, but verse 24, John 20, verse 24. Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. Now in the Greek it means he, they kept telling him, we've seen the Lord, we've seen the Lord, we've seen. They're trying to convince him. We've seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see his hands, unless I see his side, I'm not going to believe. 
And after eight days, his disciples was again inside, and Thomas was with them. The first time Thomas wasn't there, he missed it. He should have been there because he needed to see the Lord. But the second time he showed up, the Lord says, I'm coming, and I'm going to let you see me because you need to see me because you're going to be an apostle. Acts chapter number 1 states that apostles had to be an eyewitness account. That's why the canon of Scripture is closed, because it was eyewitnesses that documented the Scriptures. There is no more eyewitnesses. Even the Apostle Paul declared that he was an eyewitness to the fact that Jesus was risen. So therefore, the Scripture is closed. The canon is closed. We don't add to the Bible anymore because there's no more eyewitnesses of what was seen. So Thomas had to be an eyewitness for his testimony to be reliable. And so therefore, he stands. He says, I'm not going to believe him. Jesus says, listen, Thomas, stop doubting. Don't doubt anymore, Tom. Verse 27, don't doubt anymore, but I want you to believe. Don't doubt, but believe me. In other words, he's actually saying this. Quit doubting what the apostles had told you. Your other brothers told you I was alive and well. You should have believed them, but that's all right. I'm going to come and prove to you that I am who I said I am. Let me ask you a question. Can I ask you a question today? If Christ came to save sinners, why would he not come to comfort the doubters? If Christ came to the lost sheep of Israel, why would he not seek out those who are bewildered by disbelief? If Christ came to set the captives free, then why would he not unshackle those who are enslaved by superstition and disbelief and doubt? If Christ has come to heal the brokenhearted, would he not also mend those who doubt? If Christ came to give us liberty, why would He not free those who are imprisoned by mistrust? If Christ would leave the ninety and nine and go seek out the one that is lost, will He not also come and find those who are wandering in the darkness of doubt? Do you think that doubt stops the hand of God? Doubt is not the opposite of faith. The opposite of faith is unbelief. And there's a clear distinction of that. Doubt always exists. Doubt always coexists with faith. For in the presence of certainty, who would need faith at all? And Thomas ends the story. The story ends with Thomas saying, My Lord, my God. Number four, your faith should always result in the confession of his deity. Now, this is what's interesting. Thomas said, get this. Thomas said, unless I put my hands, put my finger in your hands, put it in my side, I won't believe. Look at verse 27. Unless I put my finger, unless I put my finger in your side, finger in your hand, verse 27, John 20, verse 27. Unless I put my finger in your side, and put it in your hand. I'm not going to believe. Now look at it. Verse 28. And, ans and Thomas answered and said, My Lord, my God, nowhere 
does the scripture tell us that Thomas actually touched Jesus? Thomas wanted to touch Jesus. Thomas said, my condition is this. If I don't touch him, I'm not going to believe. But the scripture does not say Thomas ever touched him. The Bible says he saw him and said, my Lord and my God. Because this is the point. When you get in the presence of Jesus Christ, you don't need to touch him. He's already touched you. And therefore, it's no wonder you cry, my Lord and my God. Woo! The greatest confession, the greatest confession in the New Testament is by a man who is emotionally complex. Was a man that doubted. Was a man that asked questions. My Lord, my God. He, he's not only saying he's my Lord, but he's saying he's my God. In other words, he is saying Jesus is the center of my life. You know what true faith is? True faith should always lead you to a greater understanding of who Jesus is. True faith should lead you to a greater understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus is just not a resurrected body on Easter Sunday morning. Thomas said, you're more than a resurrected man. You are my Lord, you are my master, and you are God. Faith should lead you to a greater understanding. And you know why that's important? Because Thomas is a Jew, and Jews believed in one God who is Jehovah. And for him to make the statement that Jesus, your God, your faith should lead you to a greater appreciation of who Jesus is, that Jesus is master over your life, not your money, not your relationships, not your car. Jesus is your master. You don't got views, baby. You follow the master's views. The views about abortion is not your view. It's his view. And if you submit to your, the lordship of Jesus, you follow the views of the Lord. It's not, oh, I, this is my opinion about it. You don't got an opinion. You are a slave to the master. You are a slave to righteousness. It's not your money. It's not your spouse. It's not your kids. You own nothing. You are a slave to the master, and everything you got in life is a gift. And the way you treat that gift will be determined if God could trust you with more. Everything's a gift. You own nothing. You think you do, but you don't. You own nothing. The person you love the most can die tomorrow. You own nothing. The money you have could go bankrupt tomorrow. You own nothing. The only thing you are responsible for is submitting to the lordship of Jesus and following what he says and holding everything in life with an open fist. That the great... The great church father, St. Augustine, said it like this, that when Jesus is Lord of your life, then you will be able to challenge everything in your life that you're attached to. Your faith should result in the confession of Jesus. 
It's just, this is interesting. The book I just read from, John chapter 20. John chapter... Can I say this? Let me just say this. All right, just look at this. Everybody say, look at this. John chapter 1, the very first chapter of the book, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. At the end of the book, Thomas agrees with the first confession of John. The book opens with declaring that Jesus is God, and Thomas ends the book declaring that Jesus is God. Because all of our faith rests upon the fact that Jesus is more than just a resurrected man. Jesus is actually God in human flesh. You see, I could say that Jesus went from, and in the Greek, my Lord, my God, it was almost as if he was shouting. He went from a doubting Thomas to a shouting Thomas. My Lord, my God. And Jesus said, Thomas, I know you believe because you see now, but blessed are those who have never seen me, but they still believe. And I want to let you know, that Jesus is talking about you. You don't have the privilege of looking at Jesus physically today, but Jesus pronounces a blessing upon your life because you still believe him. You've never seen his nail prints hands, but you still believe him. You've never seen his feet, but you still believe him. You've never seen his beard plucked from his face, but you still believe him. You've never seen the blind uh, walk or the blind see and the lame walk, but you still believe him. You've never seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, but you still believe him. You've never seen the testimony of the disciples, but you still believe him. And my friends, you are blessed this morning because you believe and you have not seen before. You're blessed. I still believe him. So what can we learn about Thomas? We learn that we're emotionally complex. We learn that it's okay to ask questions. We've learned that it's, there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. We learn that it should always lead us to a greater confession of who Jesus is. He went from doubting Thomas to shouting Thomas. Would you give the Lord a hand clap of praise?